Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. I sure hope that you're having a wonderful first few days of our new year here together, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to join us for our episode today. We have two very special guests who have been an inspiration for both myself and Russell since the inception of our practice. And we're here to talk to them about their journey, what brought them to yoga and their experiences with the practice. And there's so much for them to share that we really could just barely touch the surface with this podcast episode. We talk about their new book, When Love Comes to Light. So of course, today we're interviewing none other than Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor. We're super excited to have them with us. So I wanna tell you about a free giveaway that we are having where you can get your very own copy of When Love Comes to Light sent directly to your house. I will mail you a free book and it's a draw, so there's just something really simple you have to do. Head on over to iTunes and rate the Finding Harmony podcast. Give us a five-star review and leave us two or three sentences. And be sure you then take a screenshot and post that screenshot to Instagram with the hashtag Finding Harmony Podcast. And then tag me also, Harmony Slater Yoga. And you could also post it to my Facebook group, Harmony Yoga Resources. And I will take all of the entries and one lucky person will receive a free copy of Richard and Mary's new book. So we're excited to have this free giveaway for you. And I hope that you rate and review our podcast. We love to read your comments and read your reviews. They just make us super happy to know there's people out there that love listening to these conversations. And so be sure you do this before January 7th. We'll be closing the draw then and sending the book to one lucky winner. So without waiting any longer, here's Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm here today with Russell Case. This is a very special holiday episode. Yes, and we have very special people for our episode today, teachers who are mentors and icons and have been uh, not physically with me for my whole yoga practice, but definitely virtually um, and in spirit, uh, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor. Hi. Hello. Hey there. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to virtually connect with you over the airways here. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing how even connecting electronically makes you feel Connected. Not alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think we all had a little bit of a aversion to the online over the the technological airways um, before this COVID, but now we're all used to it. Yeah. There's Are some we? benefits to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's some real benefits. You know, I've been practicing with you guys online a little bit in the summer and then with uh, Bob Thurman 
this oh. autumn and practicing with you guys has been something I've always wanted to do. And it just has never really happened for me in a physical way for various reasons because of location and distance and time and money. And, and so it's been such a blessing actually of this time to be able to actually practice with you guys and take some of your classes and learn, learn and listen to what you're saying. So well, I'm, I'm happy for that. <laughs> yeah, we've really enjoyed working together. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so nice. You know, I, I have to say as well that um, I've never really appreciated the, the sense of, of upana or, or sitting next to and how, and how transformative that is to, to one's body and mind, the way it is when I'm with Mary and Richard, mm-hmm. it, um, it's the only time I've really actually felt transformed physically because, and it even, because it even changes the way that I want to speak mm-hmm. and I make, I want to speak slower. I want to speak with my diaphragm and, <laughs> and I want to ponder things, you know? And so it's, it's, I've, um, I think probably everyone changes us when we're next to them, but I, I've, it's really for the, the, Uh, for the better with Mary and Richard. So thank you (laughs) for being on the show with us. Oh, we're happy to be here. Yeah. (laughs) And you're still here. Yeah, we're still here. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I was thinking of questions to ask you all. And I, I was reminded of being in Taiwan and having to introduce, uh, Richard to the yoga students there. And I, um, I wanted to see if you remembered this former introduction that I gave, that I gave you then. I'm just going to repeat it now. Um, Richard is from uh, St. Louis or from Illinois, which is the, the middle of the middle of the country, which is appropriate, of course. Mm-hmm. And yet I, I grew up about 200 miles east of Richard in the farm country and what always amazed me about Richard is that he grew up to be a prince and I grew up to be a pig. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that? Yes, vaguely, I do. <laughs> so my, my students were all really upset with me. They, um, they didn't understand why I would self-deprecate. And, you know, I think we, we like to do that. That's a value that we have um, as a culture. But they they were completely flummoxed by it. They didn't like, why why would you say things like that about yourself? But I just want to know um, if you could if you could tell us um, how did you grow up? You were is St. Louis in in Illinois or is it in Missouri? No, no, I was in Missouri. You were in a a place right near Washington University. Okay, absolutely, yeah. Right next to the university is the first suburb out called University City. And that's where I grew up. And so, and so most of the, uh, it was a very interesting neighborhood. It was uh, largely um, a Jewish neighborhood populated with Holocaust survivors. And um, many of them were teaching at the university and uh, that's what, you know, it was really amazing in retrospect because mm. um, there were, you know, just on our street, there were four or five professors from the university and 
the school was all kids, you know, whose parents were, you know, interesting. Mm. And so I was, you know, grew up with uh, kind of an, a hyper aware of the politics of World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then across the street, down on the corner, was one of the most famous uh, scholars of uh, of Kant, uh, who taught at the university. And then one of my best friend's fathers ran the philosophy department at the university. And um, so I was lucky in that way. Um, and Your so, parents were were doctors as well, were they? My my father and my grandfather were doctors. My mother was a journalist, and uh, currently my my older sister is a doctor, who's happily retired. <laughs> and and your younger brother, is that right? My younger brother. He is a professor of Appalachian music. Oh, he's not. Well, no, that's his hobby. He's a <laughs> He's um, an academic librarian at Purdue University. <laughs> oh, Purdue. Okay. Yeah. In Lafayette. Yeah, yeah in Lafayette. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, his hobby, his obsession is uh, music. Yeah. He's a fiddle player and a banjo player. And a player. banjo player. And historical you know, music yeah. is just his passion. Mm-hmm. So you've always had a love for philosophy then. You grew up in an environment that had you questioning yeah. and thinking deeply about life and these big questions. Yeah. And uh, when I was, uh, I think, 13, I, I read, I started reading um, uh, Emerson, Thoreau, and Walt Whitman, who were the American Transcendentalist School. And they were the first people in the 1840s, early 1840s, to get translations and interpretations of uh, Indian scriptures. Mm-hmm. And so, and they went, they were into it. They were good. Yeah. <laughs> They're still good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good things last. <laughs> so that got me going. And... uh did you, was it natural for you to seek out yoga? Did it kind of okay. naturally fall out of that or? It fell out of that. Yeah. Because I, I became obsessed with uh, Thoreau and Walden Pond and then nature. And uh, in high school, I studied Kant mm-hmm. and because I had a good German teacher. And uh, so that kind of like spoiled me. <laughs> yeah. uh, forever forever yeah <laughs> still explains spoiled, still the, rotten uh, <laughs> the core. explains the prince part <laughs> yeah. right yeah i was reading i was introduced to walden pond by reading dunesbury comics oh. well. introduction they're all on walden pond did you so you were in a high school and you're you're studying the transcendentalists and you're probably Tempting mm-hmm. to sit down and see what that feels like. Oh, and yeah. then did you did you decide to to go to Chicago at that point? Did you go to the the university there? As I remember, um, I went to a school that was an experimental school that was connected to the University of Chicago, 
at the time called Scheimer. And it was a what they called a great books college where you would oh. spend your time reading the original works of different scholars historically. And uh, it was actually, and it was the later 60s. And so the real thing at the college was the experimentation in uh, things that uh, people did in the late 60s. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as I remember, you, you told me a story of your first yoga oh, yeah. class. Well, the first you, one I taught, yeah. Yeah, that you had, um, you, you had taken um, a drop from a magic potion and sat down on the quad to read from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And, um, then, and that was your first class. It was like that. It was actually a few people. And they had to uh, imbibe in what today we, we know is the Soma uh, from the uh, Samaveda. Uh, but at the time it was, you know, the experimental uh, psychoactive of the time. And then <laughs> the synthetic soma. And then we, part of the so class bad. was then to, we read the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seemed to work out. <laughs> uh, I think just due to good luck, for, you know, and kind of when you're that naive going into things, you know, you, sometimes you get lucky. <laughs> and then uh, a friend of mine and I from from college, you know, we would go to uh, Chicago all the time, and uh, we found the uh, Chicago Zen Temple, yeah. and uh, that was where we uh, were first doing sitting practice, and that was quite profound. You know, the um, teacher was very good. Mm. And, I think uh, I'm still a student, <laughs> <laughs> although, you know, I've, I've wandered a bit, but uh, yeah. it provided context for me. Well, I, I also want to kind of catch up on, on Mary's uh, story. Um, I'd like to come back to other things that you were learning there, maybe like uh, uh, Sufism, but um, Mary, are you? Are, you're not also from Illinois, are you? No, no. I actually was born and grew up in Florida. Uh, uh. Yeah, my parents were English. My mother had grown up in China uh. and um, was the daughter of missionaries who were English. And my father was English. And they had met um, during, again, during World War II in Germany, um, she had come back from China. She'd lived there for the first 18 years of her life. So that's part of why I have a real affinity for Asia yeah. um, mm -hmm. is the history with my grandfather and her, you know, her stories, et cetera. It's just always felt part of my um, sort of makeup. Yeah. And um, anyway, so they met and she had, had gotten an anthropology degree at the University of London. And my father actually was a brilliant, brilliant scholar who had never been to university. Um, and he got uh, taken into um, the, because of the war, he ended up sort of going to 
the military college and becoming a major in the army. And then later he became a professor and they were both professors in Florida. Um, so I grew up in a way in a similar environment to Richard in that, you know, surrounded by professors and the idea of really, really diving deeply into learning. My father taught um, humanities. So he, mm. you know, had that global view. And then my mother as the anthropologist had that inquisitiveness. Yeah, about culture and yeah, yeah why, why things are the way they are. Exactly. <laughs> well, it does really explain your attraction to each other. Uh, Harmony and I, our parents, our fathers are both working class thugs. So <laughs> we get along. We call that salt of the earth. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, that's really kind, very kind of you. Um, so what part Real of... <laughs> yes, real people. <laughs> what um, what uh, what part of Florida did you grow up in? Well, I was born in a city by the name of Frost Proof, which might appeal to you now that you're in Canada. Yeah, yeah that yes. sounds appealing. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, and but then uh, grew up most of the time in Gainesville, which is where the University oh, of Florida is, yeah, and so I right. went to the University of Florida for my undergraduate degree. Well, you didn't go there right off though, did you? I mean, you... I did. I went there and then took, after two years at university, I took uh, a year off. And that's oh, when I, I see. Yeah, that's when I went to um, France and studied cooking. And I was originally at the Cordon Bleu. And then I went to do the year long program with uh, Julia Child and Simone Beck at um, L'Ecole des Trois Gourmands. And that was in the outskirts of Paris. And I was absolutely fascinated by Julia Child. As, <clears throat> when I was a child, yeah. I would watch it. Um, I'd watch her all the time. There was, she was just so, I didn't, I'd never heard anyone speak that way. <laughs> no one <laughs> has ever spoken that way before or since. <laughs> and she was commanding. She was, you know, over six feet tall and wow. so genuine and so... Oh, you worked with her personally? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. And it was not, she was not there the whole time, mm -hmm. um, but she was there parts of the time and she was wonderful. Um, and I got to know her again later. I mean, I, more deeply because actually later in life, I moved to Boston on her recommendation um, to just be, you know, I was sort of communicating where, where would be a good place to, to move. And she said, come to Boston. And she was just a fabulous person and really love, you know, I, in my mind, uh, she has, was one of the people who really changed the um, world view on food. Um, and, and her husband was a diplomat and she was very aware of politics, et cetera, and the nature of food as, as sort of uh, something that could bind people together mm -hmm. and, and draw people together in, you know, who might have different views of things. And so food becomes this means of communication. 
Was there someone in the house who, who cooked like that when you're growing up, or were you just were you watching her on TV too? No, there wasn't. Uh, my mom, you know, had actually been to the Cordon Bleu for a real short course when she was living in Paris. Um, so she knew about it and she was a good cook, but no. And, but they, my parents knew of Julia Child and we kind of watched her a little. And then um, it, it was right at the time where her main books were coming out. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had had actually after the first two years of university, I, and, and anyone who knows Richard and me knows, know that he's the sort of laid back one who has tension underneath the surface. And I'm the <laughs> one with tension on the surface who has a laid back personality. And well. so my, um, you know, the anxiety from university and it was during the time of the uh, Cambodian, well, no, it was before the Cambodian invasion, but it was during the uh, Vietnam War. Oh, yeah. And there was a huge amount of unrest, kind of like the Black Lives Matter movements right. that were mm-hmm. going on this summer, extreme. And I got very involved with anti-war stuff and then became extraordinarily disillusioned when I recognized that some of the leaders, you know, student leaders of these movements were actually, you know, sort of fraternity party boys who just <laughs> were doing their thing in a different form. And it it cut through my core of idealism to the point that I went into this sort of um, existential crisis and became, and it manifested in me um, in combination with the stress from being at university, I became anorexic. And it was at oh. a time where people didn't even know what that was. So I was a trendsetter. And, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just have to say that. <laughs> what, what, what year was that? That was like 1971. Okay. Wow. And, yeah. and so people really didn't address it. No one talked to me about it. No one knew. And I was studying psychology because I knew I was crazy. And yeah. that was, you know, and so I had looked and figured out what was going on and I still couldn't control it. And at some point in that, I was, I was watching television. And the silly thing was, I saw this silly ad about, you know, this kind of margarine that was as good as butter. And it had a French chef, you know, <laughs> touting this. And I thought, I'm going to go to France and study cooking. That it just sort of oh. flipped my mind. And I think my parents were so relieved yeah. that, 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 you know, they facilitated that for me. And that was a very big turnaround for me um, externally, but it really was not until years later when I started actually doing yoga that, um, that the internal shifts in, in all of that uh, balanced out for me. Hmm. That's so interesting. Did you find when you were in France then and you had gone there still struggling with, you know, anorexia, this, you know, with your relationship to food and having that be also a stress response, did you find that you were able to physically um, sort of heal that relationship with food through your learning there? 
Yeah, in a certain level, I did, yes, because I I have always had a strong aesthetic sense mm-hmm. of things, and that's been very, very important to me. And and something in my you know gut had told me that that what I needed to do was dive into the arms of you know the quote unquote enemy, which was food. And mm-hmm. so I ended up in this big shift really seeing food in a whole different light. And mind you, this was long before in the United States, things like health foods mm-hmm. had come about. Um, and grocery stores were very, you know, like pizza parlors were sort of these extraordinary things that existed in just a few places. Cultural extreme. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> the Italians were. They were, yeah. They were marginalized. Yeah. So yeah. it, you know, Not, so yeah. it was just like this shift. And so that's what I was saying that externally I started eating again and my body started looking normal again and all of that. But then the sort of struggle that that is more of a what the actual illness is, that was this very private thing that went on within me for, you know, 10, 15 years that no one knew about. And that was this other book that I wrote years ago um, with a friend addressed that. that, And I think that's true for many, many men and women, I mean, Mm -hmm. or women Mm -hmm. and men that, that, um, you know, we have struggles with things internally that uh, often something like yoga can help us resolve by grounding us and by letting us start to watch uh, sort of the flaws that are part of all of us and then recognizing, hey, you know, they're minuscule compared to many, many things in this world. And I don't wanna spend my life focused on that. I want to spend my life focused on being connected with other people and with life itself. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, you probably don't know this, but like about 20 years ago, when I first sort of entered the path of Ashtanga yoga, um, I was also struggling with anorexia and bulimia. Oh, and no. I had been listening to um, Richard's Yoga Matrix. I think oh. it had just been released yeah. probably on cassette tape because <laughs> 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 um, there was no such thing as audiobooks really I don't think at that oh, time no. online no um, no no it was before CDs yeah. yeah it was before CDs I I've purchased your yoga matrix in all digital forms <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was listening to that and I was thinking oh this is really interesting I started doing a little research and um, found out that Richard Freeman was married to Mary Taylor, but you weren't uh, so visible at that time because you had a young child that you, I'm sure you was keeping you extremely busy. Um, and, but I found out that you had this book called What Are You Hungry For? And I purchased it and it really um, changed my life, I think. Oh, and, I'm so glad to hear yeah, that. Yeah, it really helped to heal some of those deeper issues that, you know, you're sort of alluding to like like what are we really missing and and what is what are these disorders um you know helping us to suppress in a way and and how yeah. can we face you know some of these holes and emptiness and learning to sit with the emptiness and sit with that feeling of 
of discomfort or dis-ease and just watching it and seeing it, it really um, changed my relationship to oh. my body and my mind and, and oh. food and everything. So Wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that. Thank yeah. you. It, it doesn't make the self-loathing go away, but it does <laughs> uh, <laughs> give you some tools, you know. It kind of puts it in, in its, its place, you know. It's just, yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah. Sits it on a shelf from time to time. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I I'll get better. Um <laughs> you should read the book. <laughs> so so you said you started practicing yoga. How did that I I know it was just in the air at that time. Everybody, you know, who was who was in this on the scene was was experimenting with different kinds of things to, you know, smoking banana peels and whatnot. And, right. And, you know, but how did you find a yoga class then? What happened there? It was just, you know, a generic Hatha yoga class at the university. Well, and um, actually, when I came back, or I, maybe before I went, I can't remember the order of that. And a, a, it was when I came back and a dear friend of mine had, um, you know, talked to me about coming with her. And so it was the way many people go to their first yoga class. And it was, um, it, I found it so uh, relaxing and de-stressing that for, for then the next, you know, seven or eight years, I would just find wherever I happened to be a generic yoga class or an, often it would be Iyengar yoga class or yoga teacher. And especially, you know, the finishing poses, the shoulder stand mm. type of family of poses, they would just, you know, start easing the anxiety that I am prone to. Mm -hmm. And so it was great. And that's how I got into it. And then um, moved to Boulder many years later and um, was going to go actually to Kripalu with the same oh, friend who'd introduced right. me yeah. to yoga. And I thought, well, I should just brush up on yoga here. <laughs> And so I asked around and everyone said, go to Richard Freeman. And I did. Oh. Yeah, that's how okay. we met. You, but you were there for, for Chagham Rinpoche. Yeah. Chogyam Trungpa. Yeah. Chogyam Trungpa. Yeah. And, yeah. and you were there for, for that. And then someone said you should go to Richard's class. No, I came because of the cooking. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I was teaching cooking classes here. With, oh. Yeah. And uh, there's, you know, I won't go into all of it, but it was through that that I was here. Was that sort of your chosen career path at that time? Did you think you'd become a chef? Well, I did become a chef. Um, I, <laughs> after I, <laughs> you didn't think it. <laughs> I did. Um, yeah. <laughs> after I did the, the training in France, I also... I came back, finished the degree, and then I went back to France and apprenticed in a pastry shop and then in a couple of different three-star restaurants. Oh my and gosh. then at that point came back to the United States and I had a psychology degree. So I worked for a number of years in different ways, combining psychology work with um, working as a chef. Some of the time I worked running a restaurant, but some of the time I would do cooking classes and taught cooking all over the country at that point, because that was something that was being done in these little, you know, cookware shops. Right. And yeah. um, then 
at the same time would run these programs for disadvantaged uh, sort of populations like in prisons or in um, places where there were emotionally uh, distressed individuals who, or, you know, there was a group of young mothers who were like, had had their children at 13 and I was brought mm -hmm. in to sort of teach them skills and how to cook for their children, et cetera. So, so I've always sort of tried, it's, it's been very appealing to me to combine things rather than just go in one direction, but to, to, have, to see how these things fit together. Oh, that's hmm. amazing. Hmm. So, what year I, was that? When we met? <laughs> I think it was 83. Okay, okay. So I'd like to catch up with Richard's story a, a little bit um, <laughs> because I, I thought that maybe that you had met at Feathered Pipe in 87, 88, but it sounds like you went there together. I didn't go to Feathered Pipe. Didn't. She no. didn't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had. I wish I, I had. Know, but I, didn't. I don't know where I read that. I'll, yeah. I'll have to. That intern's going to lose their job. So, <laughs> um, but uh, so here we are in in seventy one in Chicago with Richard, and uh, you're you found a a teacher at that time. And you found the teacher in Chicago in 68. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then in 71, I was in getting ready to go to India. Yeah. And why would uh, you do that? Oh, to escape. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so in, in 1970, um, I uh, made a choice of either going to the Zen Mountain Center in uh, California or visiting the local Krishna temple, which had just opened. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Krishna temple, and this was before they were uh, being obnoxious on the yeah. streets. <laughs> oh, um, the Harry Krishna so, temple, yeah? Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, they were quite a, quite a nice group of people. Um, and at that time, Allen Ginsberg was way into it. So... Mm -hmm. uh, as he has been into many things, but he was basically uh, doing the Krishna thing uh, in New York, yeah. and uh, and then uh, you said you met him there in Chicago. No, no, no. Oh. He was he is promoting it nationally through his. I was just I was just wondering because there's we have a, Allen Ginsberg had come to my mom's house in Chicago oh. in seventy one. And he had bounced my brother on his knee. Wow! And so I didn't. I was just trying to see if there was like, wow, was, was there was there a, 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 Venn, a Venn diagram there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could you have met? Could you have met yeah. some people? No. Okay. I'm sorry. Forgive me. So anyway, um, then in uh, early, then what happened was uh, it became more cultish due mm -hmm. to people surrounding. Uh, Prabhupada, who was the main guru, and they really put him on a pedestal, surrounded him with people interested in kind of a more fundamentalist and uh, shove it down your throat method. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, um, 
I went to India to f more to find out the roots of the tradition. And uh, so that was a great experiment. <laughs> and, uh, and how did so you get in, there? Because could you, could you fly? <laughs> I know, yeah. But could you fly directly to India or did you have no, to? No, I had to fly through um, Zurich in, and I, I got the cheapest flight possible. And as it turns out, I didn't have a, I was told that I could get a visa in Zurich. And when I got, or in, uh, what's the town near Zurich where all the, no, in Switzerland. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, uh, they told me at the embassy, you know, why didn't you get one in New York? And I said, well, because they told me there that uh, I could get one in, uh, there. Yeah. So, but they said, oh, you can go anyway without. And so I got a, a landing permit mm -hmm. at the airport in uh, Bombay, and which gives you 21 days legally. Um, at the time but then you can apply and and i went to the you know the little temple there in bombay and uh immediately they said oh you can just go and apply for an extension to that uh, which i did with this very kind indian man who uh was also a lawyer and we applied for one in which in india is quite india the bureaucracy in India makes Canadian bureaucracy look very lightly. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and they gave me the application for it. And they said, you know, you're fine. Just take this with you. And, uh, and so I had the application for an extension. And uh, it was a, over a year later after I had, you know, gone to all of these places, had become a monk. Uh, I mean, a, a sannyasin. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, had traveled to many different ashrams and, uh, you know, was having a very interesting experience that I then thought, well, I want to travel to a Southeast Asia as part of my duty as a um, sannyasin or a swami, mm -hmm. which is to travel because that's the traditional way. You travel and you go to all different temples and communities in order to get a variety of teachings and you check out all these different teachers, and, um, and then which is a very rare that, you know, any group would want you to study with anybody else. But, you know, that's the traditional thing, um, which I think will make any tradition much stronger if they say, go and study with our, you know, the, those guys and those. Uh, and so uh, anyway, after, <laughs> I had to uh, get out fast, so to speak. But they were very, very merciful. They understood. You know, they said, oh, oh that was the second time I was leaving. Uh, yeah. That they said, oh, you have, you know, a week to leave. And here's your stamp. That was, anyway. Yeah, in other words, bureaucracy has been around for a long time. Confusion. Okay. It's an ancient I a, tradition. Yeah. I had a fantasy you were being attacked by monks. As, as <laughs> I didn't know what. <laughs> um, when, I'm sorry. I feel like there, we made a jump, though. You've, you, go to, you're, you go to visit India, and then you became a sannyasin yeah. in the way that you would, you know, take a, a, take a particular rickshaw. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's quite a thing to jump into. Yeah, it's quite a thing. 
That was my plan. <laughs> you had intended all, yeah. You yeah, I, I went to Vrindavan, which is the Holy Land in the, the yeah. south of Delhi. Very interesting. It means the uh, forest of beehives. Uh, Vrinda, meaning beehives. And, um, uh-huh. and that was where Prabhupada, who was the founder of the, he was the big teacher. And he was there with just uh, two other people. And so uh, the founder of the Krishna. Yeah, the founder of the Krishna. Yeah. And so we got to, you know, see him in the context of all these other teachers and uh, other lineages. And that was very valuable. And so that's when I, you know, took the, the vows of the sannyasin. And then part of the initial instruction is to travel. Uh, and to check out everybody else. Um, okay. And so that's what I started to do. And I wound up, you know, doing that in India. And then I went to Southeast Asia to mm-hmm. literally to uh, Thailand and uh, Malaysia, mm-hmm. uh, visiting different temples. And uh, then I came back to India and uh, traveled some more. And then finally, uh, I think my, I thought my visa was running out. Actually, it's already run out. <laughs> I see. And that's when I uh, yeah, was invited. Yeah, that's when I was invited by <laughs> someone I had met there to come to Iran. Uh, oh. And I'd been to Iran once before. Um, no, actually, the, the invitation to Iran was the third trip to India. No, but I, I traveled through <laughs> Iran by bus and didn't like it because, you know, buses take you through the worst parts of any town. Right. And your yeah. people are, are always, you know, they're treating you with some disdain, particularly mm-hmm. in the Middle East, because you don't appear as if you were Muslim. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I had returned to India and then at that point, I was invited to come to Iran by uh, this interesting character. And uh, I said, well, okay, I'll check it out for one month. And uh, four years later. Yeah. And basically, I stayed four years. Wow. And you, you were teaching the Shah's daughter, the princess at some point? Well, I was teaching, I was teaching initially the Shah's first daughter, uh, who was his daughter by Princess Fouzier of Egypt, and this is at the beginning of World War II, she appeared, and her husband. And I traveled with them around Iran. And then I started teaching uh, the the Shah's uh, sister's son, and but mostly his son's wife, who was a very close friend of the queen. So I was teaching the queen and uh, this other princess. And, uh, and other people in the family. You know, in a way, thinking, I'm going to change the world. By, yeah, because yeah. I was like thinking, if I could get through to these people. And <laughs> they, they were interesting people uh, yeah. in terms of their political views and their interests in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met the Shah, but I didn't, I didn't know at the time that he had cancer. And uh, right. so I didn't get to teach. Uh, the Shah, but I taught the Shah's wife. Yeah. And others involved. And so that was my initiation into the strange world of the aristocracy and big money. <laughs> uh, 
Were you there then when it fell? In- oh, yeah. I was there for the beginning of the revolution. Yeah. And uh, after, and so I had, I had to leave, you know, quietly. Uh, it's a theme. He has to leave. <laughs> I had to creep out of the coma. Because of my uh, people, you know, were optimistic at the, that the revolution was going to be an Islamic uh, Marxist revolution. Right. And that was, but actually right after the revolution, the government fell, then all of the Marxists were thrown in prison. Yeah. And the amount right of torture so. and was increased. Right. But uh, so I left in about, a, the violence started in early September and I left at the end of October. And so it was quite a strange, you know, it was a big part of my education was to see uh you know, violence in the street to be actually caught up in crowds running as fast as they could mm-hmm. away from uh, soldiers. And, it must uh, have been quite frightening. At times, yeah, it was quite. It was more like a survival, but it was also you. You couldn't go out after curfew. Uh, you and uh, so it was quite. Uh, it was kind of like being in quarantine. You know, like lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, it was really part of my education, you know, to see, um, you know, the politics of it and then to see the violence and to see the, uh, simplicity of what, you know, the large groups of people, you know, the different conspiracy theories that different groups had about each other. And it was kind of, um, heartbreaking and, but it gave me a real insight into, uh, religions and you know the the shadow side of, yeah. of religion because this was really the beginning of uh, big problems <laughs> yeah. in terms of Islamic fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. And did you go back to Boulder at that point? I went to visit my parents for six weeks, who mm-hmm. were quite relieved that I yeah. was alive. Yeah, because they knew that I was in Iran. And the whole thing on the news was uh, the revolution and then the once, hostages as well. Then the hostage crisis after yeah. the revolution. Uh, that was another thing. And so they were quite relieved. And uh, I was quite relieved. <laughs> <laughs> so then I visited family, you know, then I saw my brother and sister. And then somehow I wound up in Boulder. <laughs> how, are you, how are you dressed at this, t- at this point? moment well no in so this is the fall this is uh, forgive me what year is this now oh seven the end of 79 yeah 79 and when you go to visit your folks and you go to boulder how are you i'm wearing pants you're wearing pants sure and you walk around the the sannyas thing had gone away no that was done sannyas yeah i gave up for the uh (laughs) sannyas the sannyas (laughs) Which is, if you actually you study kiboshed the, the sannyas. If you no. study the Gita, you're supposed to do that. You have to sacrifice, sacrifice. Yes. Or give up the, the stupidity of religious literalism. And, uh, and uh, what a relief, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask one question about that? What was your, you met uh, Swami Prabhupada in oh, yeah. person. Yeah. What was your impression of him? Oh, that he was actually uh, 
not as fundamentalist as his followers wanted him to be hmm. because uh, his impression of Islam was that it's um, very sacred, you know, and all, you know, he had a great respect for other, other traditions, uh, which doesn't come across. Mm-hmm. But then again, he was also, like many teachers, quite fascinated with this sense of, you know, when people put you on a pedestal, mm-hmm. then you get quite interested in like, wow, maybe I really am special. And you become more of a, 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 a potential cult leader. Mm-hmm. And I think he was, uh, and whenever even a teacher comes down off the pedestal, the students right around them, put him back up on the pedestal. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, and at a certain point, you know, the, the fame, the money, and the, you know, the, just the idea of, wow, I can save the world, you know, with <laughs> my literal interpretation of mythology. And it's kind of, uh, you're sad. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the... I think that, um, I mean, you're, you're an expert actually of um, taking yourself off of the pedestal. <laughs> And I'm curious, do you think your experiences with these different organizations and seeing the fundamentalist religion and different sort of leaders get real comfy up there um, has informed you or like been sort of a cautionary tale? Oh, yes. (laughs) I've seen it uh, in, you know, in the yoga world. there are many cases, many examples, many people I've met who have been subjected to violence from different cults. Um, and then um, and then in the Islamic world, because uh, I was most of the yoga students in Iran were Muslim. Mm-hmm. And so you had to be a little bit uh, cool with the different chants you would do. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, but also then, you know, you, it allowed me to, you know, there I was exposed to, to many Sufi teachers and so, and to, of course, to Rumi, uh, who was a mystic. And then the, how people within the different Islamic traditions, both uh, Sunni and uh, Shia, uh, had through communication and practice gotten really deep and come up with, you know, some brilliant um, insight into the actual yoga. And, and an interesting sort of overlap with Richard and me too, was that, um, you know, as he was having these experiences and learning about this sort of cult-like behavior that happens in these circumstances, I was very involved nationally with the sort of beginnings of what was the American food movement Mm -hmm. um, and saw what to me seemed a parallel um, process going on where people were infatuated by, you know, Jacques Pepin or Julia Child or Mm -hmm. this uh, method or that method and and Mm -hmm. became lost in this same uh, idea of you know, surrounding their 
person, whether it was Julia Child or whomever, and putting them on a pedestal and then being the ones to protect them and being the ones who knew her, etc. Mm-hmm. And it, and I was, I got s- such a sour taste in my mouth from that because it was a reflection mm-hmm. of what I had seen in the uh, protests against, you know, the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. The same sort of infatuation with the drama and the power that that you know we're drawn into something with passion for you know whether it's food or being against the war or yoga or whatever and then how quickly human nature can really twist things into this power dynamic mm-hmm. and uh, putting us up on a pedestal as well and so Richard and I from the time we first met I was so amazed to hear you know, that this was going on in religious and yoga circles too, because I'd seen it myself in sort of, you know, everyday secular types of situations. And the difference then in the yoga or religious world is that it is, you know, people who go into those traditions are vulnerable in beyond the vulnerability that mm-hmm. people who go into other things are very mm-hmm. often they are and it's and there's an even more extreme dynamic that can be set up and so there's and the responsibility that the leaders have you know like if you're a cooking teacher yes you should have some responsibility <laughs> to not do that but it's not um, as much of a moral problem mm-hmm. as it would be for a religious, a religious leader. Yeah. yeah, that's so interesting because I, I um, we talked about this a, a couple times in the show before, but that was my impression of of Mysore and going to see Patabi Joyce was not so much that he was a cult leader. He just seemed he seemed like a like a, like a friendly grandpa who was you know. Uh, exhort you to work harder and that was really sweet but it was everyone around him that was codifying the normative behavior yeah yes i have to agree overall and eventually i think he uh, because the codification uh just made it easier for him uh then it was more mechanical and particularly as he got older and older and when more and more and more people came When we Mm -hmm. were first there, there were, you know, eight people maximum in the room. Mm -hmm. And and so it, you know, you don't, you're not as prone to having these, you know, these sort of aberrations that come up. Yeah, and for a while we were the only ones there. Yeah. Yeah. But it was was even more insidious than that because... It was our friends. It was our closest, best yeah. friends yeah. doing it to each other. So, for example, yeah. when Harmony stopped eating garlic, you know, it was like, <laughs> I felt like, oh, yeah, maybe maybe I should stop eating garlic, <laughs> you know. And, and these are people that I trust, but it was just, it was just, um, it became terrifying to break away from to to deviate from the normative behavior and so much so that you find yourself um 
you know, married to someone because they're vegetarian and yeah. do Ashtanga yoga. Yeah. And that becomes really surreal yeah. how much your life can change by the, the normative demands of the, the people around you. Yeah. And, and somehow having lost sight of the essence of your own uh, true beliefs and true um, the, how you resonate with things, uh, that is an imperative if you are going to buy into, you know, any group, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's, you know, the one in Mysore or, or, you know, the one in a cooking school where, where you no longer can really question things. And that's mm -hmm. for Richard and me, that is such an important um, aspect of what we both feel is important to us as individuals to keep questioning. And we, really ask that of students too, that you, you do that, 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 that doesn't mean you have to reject everything, but that you look again mm -hmm. and you over and over, because every time you look at something, mm -hmm. it's going to look different. And so that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah. To ask questions, to inquire, vichara mm -hmm. is actually the yoga tradition. And in a cult, you're not really allowed to inquire or to mm -hmm. ask questions, you know, all kinds of questions, you know, fundamental, everything that arises, you're supposed to look into it, you know, in an inquisitive way. Um, but in a cult, you're not supposed to ask questions mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it's too, uh, you, you don't want to really discover what's true. You want to <laughs> prop the ego up. Yeah, and uh, profit from you know the, that. Yeah, I, I have um, like harmony uh, in, embedded in my in my long term memory uh, are the months or years that my peers arrived to Mysore before or after me, because in that way I could place myself on a hierarchy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so it's crystalline. It's, yeah. yeah, it's crystallized in the the hippocampus. You know. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it feels very much um, in keeping with the the book that you're that you're writing now. Uh, when love comes to light, bringing have, have written is published. It's really. I'm sure they're still it's working. Really I'm sure they're still working on it. <laughs> We're um, revising it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bringing bringing wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita into modern life. It, it felt so much when when I was reading through it that you were very much looking at the the day to day um, dilemmas that we're faced with. You know, whether you go paper or plastic, uh, credit or cash. Um, the, these are these life or death decisions on what, on what to do. They're, they're really, the Bhagavad Gita presents that situation so beautifully. And I wonder if you could talk to us about the book that you've written and, and what, what caused it to happen. <laughs> what caused it to happen? <laughs> um, well, let's see over the, it was, we started it, uh, we started, years ago. Yeah, we started actually writing it three years ago. 
but we've been thinking about it for a long time yeah. and we love writing together. It's something that we really, really enjoy doing. And, you know, just the Gita is such an amazing text mm -hmm. and it's one Richard, you know, that you have loved for years and years and years and have studied a lot. And, and we've read different, uh, Oh, many commentaries yeah. on it and translations and so it's one that for both of us has resonated yeah and arjuna is in a terrible situation but it's beautifully laid out in the mahabharata uh, where he's at a, a point of ethical dilemma and what's very interesting is that uh, krishna doesn't actually tell him what to do he tells them to look again, to look more closely. Mm. And so Krishna keeps presenting different religious views and Arjuna basically says, you know, that's that's nice, but that doesn't answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so it's a dis distressing book because Arjuna keeps, you know, he almost gets it and then he goes back to his crisis mm -hmm. and, uh, and it really is an exposure of the religious mind Mm -hmm. And the different schools, which are all presented uh, very brilliantly, but they don't actually answer the more, the deeper, deeper questions of, um, but they encourage you to actually look, uh, look with, you know, to be extremely inquisitive like Arjuna, to be that honest and to recognize the uh, crisis, uh, which we're all in that crisis and, um, Particularly All the these time, days. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, there are little crises and big crises. And <laughs> and yet, it, you know, in fact, there, it is really this thing of, of, of taking refuge in the other and in life mm -hmm. and in love. And in, in the book, it would be in, in Krishna himself, which is beloved. all of that, yeah. in the beloved. Mm -hmm. and, and once one does that, whether it is the crisis, as you're saying, of a small thing, like mm -hmm. what, whether to use plastic or paper, <laughs> or a more, you know, a, a bigger crisis, like many of us have experienced in this last year. Mm -hmm. um, they, the same sort of basic idea of questioning and and taking refuge in the in in life is uh, how we can you know find our way through because there is never a single formula. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and we find that the Gita is a very clever deconstruction of religion. Mm. Uh, to mm -hmm. what it's, it doesn't say you won't do it because it's, it's also the inevitable thing that makes a human being is there yeah. shraddha, even if they if, if it's just coffee that's still a religion, um, <laughs> for some of us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but it, it but it exposes that, and then says, well, what's the you know what's really going on, and so. Uh, it really makes you uncomfortable when uh, it becomes hard, hard theistic and Krishna appears, you know, with fangs and is crushing the skulls of all of Arjuna's friends between his teeth. And mm -hmm. Arjuna is like, wait, you know, and uh, 
and so it's it's beautiful and the krishna repeatedly comes down off of the pedestals of the stories about him that the mind creates mm-hmm. everyone's mind creates and he comes right into manifesting as that which is the most beloved in all beings in actually in the heart of all beings and so when you really see another being even if it's a kitten or a puppy or a, <laughs> a yogi or a psychopath you know <laughs> you see that they're actually you uh, mm-hmm. not in the sense of the story of you but they're actually that pure consciousness and uh, that is just and then you have this extreme appreciation just for you know how water tastes and how the wind is blowing and nature and interconnectedness and it isn't a heavy it's not a heavily theistic text which often comes across that way uh, in which we're supposed to put bhakti on a pedestal after we put krishna on a pedestal and krishna always comes down off the pedestal and manifests most truly as a bodhisattva or mm. you know someone who is uh, essentially Buddhist or Mahayana Buddhist who just enjoys helping others, being of service to others. Mm. I, I, that's, it's interesting. One year you came to Taiwan and you said to me, you know, the coffee is demonic. And I, <laughs> I stopped well, I drinking. I must have been joking. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I took you literally. And uh, yeah. I stopped drinking coffee. Yeah, and really? then, um, yeah, sure. Uh, I, that's, you know, I'm, I'm vulnerable to cultish behavior. <laughs> and, um, and then the very next year you came and you and I shared an, uh, the most glorious iced coffee from a Starbucks <laughs> that I'd ever had. And I realized, oh, I think... I think I can just leave, live with the demon inside me. <laughs> That's good. Um, I, 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 there's a particular passage that I think relates to, to what you're talking about that I think is, was really interesting. Um, if I could read, Arjuna, a warrior in the center of an unfolding battle with people he loves and admires on both sides. Yeah, And I heard that last clause and it reminded me of, of, our, of our president uh, who's, who had said, you know, very fine people on both sides. <laughs> oh. And, you know, what, what you're, what, what's real is that there are very fine people on both sides. Mm-hmm. There, are, there is love and Krishna inside of all people, even in the other, even when we're in, this, in the midst of this social civil war, it's really difficult to remember that um, these people are human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to um, cast them out of your heart even though, but that doesn't mean that even though you love them for who they actually are, sometimes their belief is such that uh, there's really almost a demonic possession. <laughs> um, 
like uh, well, when, when you know and when someone does incredible harm to others yeah it is yeah. you know then as the bodhisattva how do you see through and around that mm -hmm. and how do you act skillfully in that situation yeah to minimize the suffering of others um and Arjuna had that same dilemma. His his cousin was a psychopath, Duryodhan. Yeah. Mm. Uh, really bad. Uh, but then, it, because there were two, it was one huge family. Uh, a lot of his, you know, very fine, and some of his teachers were on the opposing side because of the political complexity. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, at no point in the Mahabharata are you supposed to, you can love Duryodhan, uh, but you don't, if you had a chance to take him down, you would. <laughs> As a service to him and a service to all other beings. Yeah, uh, that's how I feel about the New York State Attorney General. <laughs> yeah. she, she has a dharma that's coming. <laughs> yeah. And not that we wouldn't make the same mistake, you know, given... The right circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if that's true, because if we were raised exactly the way that Donald was raised, yeah, we'd very likely make exactly the same choices. Uh -huh. And and he he clearly was brutalized severely. Yeah, he learned the art. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. This. Um, connection between like somebody's karma and what you know sort of where they end up and but then also the feeling that we're able to choose that there is a freedom in in our choices that not everything we do is um, just simply a product of our actions yeah. How do you how do you reconcile these two things the the existence or the the perceived existence of karma and and uh, results and those results becoming other results versus having the yoga which is really about freedom and and liberation. So yeah, yoga is considered to be the art of karma. Mm -hmm. uh, how to it's a creative art. Um, and so even though we all have a kind of embodied destiny, you know, which is the history of your, your subtle body and then your gross body, which is obviously has certain genetic codes and social circumstances. But if you really observe the mind, you can actually find that action when there's the practice of mindfulness is a creative thing because every little uh, choice you make uh, will have consequences. And so you can start to create a very beautiful situation, even if you're in, have, you're in very dire circumstances through the art of, or the skillful means mm -hmm. of action. And so the Gita turns karma on its head in terms of what people think, in that uh, it is that that's what yoga, that's why Arjuna is said you know yoga is actually work, it's the art of working Arjuna. So, and often there are very tiny steps that you'll take um, by bringing your mind back to 
your breath rather than running off on a neurotic uh, storyline. Mm-hmm. And that has consequences. That's, that it becomes embodied with uh, samskara or good samskaras. And so karma is flipped on its head in the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, so Arjuna is encouraged to act. Um, otherwise, you know, then otherwise your historical karma takes, you know, it's just like your destiny, which is basically whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Predetermined. <laughs> yeah. And so people use the word, you know, that's, and so the word has the, you know, that's the long-term meaning and the short-term meaning is that you, you can create some scars and you can upgrade the whole situation and there's no end to it. And so that's the idea of the Bodhisattva is that they are committed to work, um, you know, using the creative principle of action. And it's not actually you that's acting. It's, you know, the little pieces of Prakriti acting on Prakriti, but it becomes a very, very, and it's unlimitedly beautiful. And that's what, uh, until it's called Leela by the, in the uh, mythology or play. And that's the, in mythology, that's the play of Krishna in Vrindavan, where every, everything is this uh, divine Shakti. And so just the little tiny things, you know, just the sound of a bird is complete, complete joy. Mm. Um, well, that's how I'm feeling listening to your voice now. Um, <laughs> One last question, and I think you talk a lot about this a bit more in The Art of Vinyasa, which is another book that you both co-wrote together. Um, but the idea of, of sanctifying something and, and setting it down in that act of releasing or letting go, you also talk about this in, in the When Love Comes to Light in the Gita. There's a lovely passage in there about, about letting something go in that act of releasing allows it to um, be sanctified in a way or, or become its own mm. special thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's such a, a lovely idea and, and vi- visual sort of, um, I don't know, the way you talk about it's so beautiful. And, and as we sort of come to the close of our episode here, we can just sanctify it and and set it down (laughs) so that's so if we're really paying attention um we can you know we concentrate the mind we kind of collect everything together and into something that we consider to be sacred it could be a, a sacred table or a sacred um altar um but anyway, it's our field of concentration that we finally started to see into. Um, and along with it is all of the assumptions in the background, you know, where that's our mind is wanting to create a sacred space. It's wanting this or that. So all of the, what we call the unconscious ego functions that are involved in uh, or might be involved. And then, and that's called abhyasa, uh, mm-hmm. or concentrating the mind, making 
sacred spaces. But then the real joy is in putting it down. And so if you've collected, say, everything together and you think, oh, I have the whole universe uh, here in the sacred stone that uh, I now have. Um, and then the end of the fact is you put the stone down and you let it go or you give it away as an offering. And when you're putting the stone down, you're putting also down the entire content of your mind, unconscious and conscious, uh, even with silly motivations, uh, demonic shadows, <laughs> the whole thing you put down because it, none of it is you and then you let it go. And so, and the letting go is when it's the whole thing manifests is like sunshine. It just shines out. And that's often the missing ingredient. Uh, even in many religious rituals is there's not a complete putting it down and letting it go. Mm. And it's, it's, you know, when you, shift your mind state so that that is something that comes to mind to do with your actions and with the things you do in this world. Um, it is such a relief because the tendency for the, you know, small self for the ego to get engaged or involved or you know, loving it or hating it or whatever to get involved in, in action um, is just consistent and, and constant. Mm -hmm. And, and it's almost like the end of an exhale when you put it down and let it be, and then, you know, something else arises. Mm -hmm. um, but it's that re huge relief of really offering it into the mix of the world, offering it to others it, mm. with all of its flaws and all of its, you know, real beauty, mm. but really sincerely letting it go 100%. And it, it has this amazing feeling like the end of a really clear exhale. Mm. And that, you know, as we all know from practicing yoga, the exhale is what allows us to stay grounded. And yeah. then once you're grounded, then when the inhale comes and the creative process begins again, um, then there's more clarity. Mm -hmm. It's the last thing we'll ever do. Yeah. I, what is arising next for you? Do you have other, <laughs> other projects that you're working on now? <laughs> yeah, we're working on um, we just finished a course on the Gita that is an online course through the publisher, through Shambhala. And then we are also working on the, another book for them that is taking form, uh, really um, not one specific text, but looking at some of the underlying themes that appear in various texts, but on how, um, you know, what the, how one finds happiness. Mm. So we're, we're working away on that. Yeah, we're thinking of the Brahma Viharas. Or the... Yes, friendliness, compassion. Yeah. yeah. Seeing deeply. Or... Well, Beautiful. I cannot wait to see those and uh, read those and, and, and see your new works. And so I just want to 
um, free you from this, the suffering. Um, <laughs> I feel and- like there's a, a lot of Shesha. There's a lot of Vishesha and Shesha that we, we, has overspilled that we'll have to col- come back and, and try to collect again. I <laughs> <Yeah>, love it. <laughs> That's a good sign when most yes. of it's still the- <laughs> Most of it's out there spilling <laughs> beyond <laughs> what we could contain. Uh, it's a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> And if people are looking for your schedule, I know you're doing some online teaching. Where can they find you? Hmm. Through our website, which is richardfreemanyoga.com. Your name really should be on there, don't you think, though, Mary? Well, I think it's on the website. It's Freeman Taylor. Okay. But we figured, you know, (laughs) go go with the name that more people know. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> well, that's thank right. you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank it was you. Yeah. such a joy. Thank you both. It's it's been a delight. Yeah, it's fun to connect, and we'll do it more. Yeah, yeah we fantastic. we have so much more to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> great, great. We didn't yeah. we didn't get beyond like 1982 or something. No, so. the eighties are very popular on TV, and so, <laughs> <laughs> so we can get into that next time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking